is next. Uh, well, this morning we are jumping into Second Peter. We've been in it a couple of weeks now. Uh, and Peter is going to get into a passage that is maybe a little bit uncomfortable, uh, but it's all about falsehood and truth and how we discern truth from falsehood. So before I got into it this morning with you, I thought we could play a little game of trying to figure out the real from the fake. Uh, I have some logos I'm going to share with you guys from popular brands out there, and I want you to vote on whether you think it is the real logo or a fake logo. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm going to assume by the awkward silence that you all agree. So uh, the first one is Fruit of the Loom, popular brand of clothing out there, Walmart. How many of you think this is the actual Fruit of the Loom logo? You look at this and say, yes, that looks real. Okay. Oh, wow. Pastor Gretchen is deeply committed to a no. Um, uh, that is correct. She was right. There is no cornucopia. She knows it. Apparently, she's a Fruit of the Loom fan. What about uh, Fruit Loops? Is this the right Fruit Loops logo? Is this the correct one? Is there any Fruit Loop eaters out there this morning? Yeah, yeah, unless you're 12, probably not. But uh, this is the correct Fruit Loops logo. Many people think it's spelled the normal way fruit is, but because it's a children's cereal, no, of course it isn't. Uh, we've got a couple more here. What about this, the Monopoly Man? Is this the real Monopoly Man right there? Yeah, how many people say, yes, this is the real Monopoly Man? How many people are like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. A few people who are brave. It is the real Monopoly man, but many people think that he has a monocle. Yeah, did you think he had a monocle? Yep, unfortunately, no. We're all very sad about that. And lastly, Looney Tunes. Is this the real Looney Tunes logo? Yes, most people say yes. You might be shocked to find out it is not the real Looney Tunes logo. Looney Tunes is actually spelled T-U-N-E-S, as in musical tunes. I know, it's a letdown. Man, there's a lot of sadness about that. Well, the reason why I'm showing you these logos this morning is we're looking at this passage that's all about false teaching. And just like those logos, it's very possible for these simple little lies to come into the church and distort and change the true picture of who Jesus is. And that was what was going on at the time that Peter was writing his letter. And so he's going to write to the churches today and encourage them to stay focused on who Christ really is and avoid the pitfall and the dangers of false teaching. If you remember the first couple of weeks that we've looked at 2 Peter, he starts this letter by saying something really important. He says that in Christ, he is, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Everything that we need. And he's going to carry that theme throughout this whole letter, trying to emphasize again and again to the church, Jesus is everything that we need. Whether you are struggling, whether you are afraid, whether you are hopeless, Jesus is the one that you need to go to. And in the midst of all that, there's a lot of different things going on in the church, and some people are starting to doubt that that's really true. And so Peter wants to overemphasize that to them. He wants to talk to them about false prophets and fake news. Now, this passage that we're going to read today uh, isn't the brightest and most exciting passage in the Bible. It's the one that's got a lot of difficult words to it. If we're really honest with ourselves, when we read something like we read today, it makes us a little uncomfortable. But it's a really important passage. It's really important for a lot of reasons, and not least of all, because false teaching has a real impact in the life of the church, in the life of believers. And so God wants to be really serious about how he feels about it and what we need to do with it. So I want to read just this first little section of 2 Peter chapter 2 with you, and then we'll talk about it together. This is what 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3 say. But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter says here, right at the outset of this chapter, that false teaching is a real problem. It's always existed, whether that was in the Old Testament with God's people wandering through the wilderness all the way up until Jesus' time, there are false ideas about what the gospel is. So I want to look at this this morning. I want to look at three things together. I want to look at how false teaching has a different message, how it has a different character, and how it has a different end. We're going to look first at this idea of a different message. Now, before we do that, I want to show you a picture of my favorite car that I've ever owned. This is the Mini Cooper. You may look at the size of me and say, that was a very foolish choice to have a Mini Cooper, Andrew. And it was. It was a really dumb decision. I inherited the Mini Cooper from my wife, uh, Janae. She had a Mini Cooper when she was uh, in college. And so when we got married, it became my car. It's the one I drove a lot. Uh, Now, we lived in Texas for the first couple of years of our marriage. And so we never had snow. We never had ice, anything like that. But when we moved to Chicago, it was my first time driving in those conditions. So I remember leaving for work one day. I worked in Naperville at the time, got in my Mini Cooper, sandwiched my huge body in there. And as I was leaving the neighborhood, I hit the brakes as I'm coming up to an intersection, and the car does not stop. And I panic just a little bit, so I start hitting the brake over and over again. Nothing's happening. And there's a car just in front of me, and I know I've got about 10 seconds before I hit the back of that car. So I try and quickly pull up on the cab to stop the car. Uh, And because the Mini Cooper is so low to the ground, it just shreds the bottom of the car. It was terrible. Um, And so I did avoid hitting the car, but that was the last day I ever drove the Mini Cooper, which I was very sad about because it was a beautiful car. But what I was kind of angry about is that no one in the Chicagoland area told me that if you're going to drive a Mini Cooper in wintertime, put some chains on the tires, put some sandbags in the trunk, do something to avoid this terrible (laughs) danger that awaits you. You know, false teaching is a little bit like that. If we are not aware of the dangers that are out there, if we don't prepare ourselves for the things that we're going to come across, it can hit us really hard. It can take us by surprise and it can veer off and we end up crashing. And so what Peter wants to do is he wants to be very upfront and very clear about the dangers of false teaching with us. And that's why he says what he says. Peter is saying these are not well-meaning people who are just a little bit off. This is serious and it makes a difference in our walk with Christ. Now, some of the things that were going on in the early church help us to understand kind of why this was so serious. You you may have remembered that from talking through both of Peter's letters, this was a time in church history when there was a lot of things to be fearful of. There was persecution if you were a Christian. Emperor Nero was coming up with all kinds of reasons to arrest and even kill Christians. And at the same time, there was really, really rapid growth. There were people coming to the gospel by the thousands. And so there was all kinds of people, Greeks and Gentiles and Romans, all coming into the church and all different cultures and ideas and teachings. And it was just this huge melting pot of a a thousand different feelings and emotions. And so it's understandable that in that time, people started to have different ideas about who Jesus really was. For example, in 2 Peter, in chapter 3, Pastor Sterling mentioned this last week, there was a lot of people who had started to believe that Jesus wasn't coming back. That maybe he'd done some really great things and he'd said some really great things, but that was it. Jesus isn't coming back. This is all that there is. And you can imagine how that changed the way people would live if they really believed that. There were some other people who would come into the church and said, what you need is not just Jesus and the cross. You need to have a really, really good life that measures up to what he did on the cross. You need to live a certain way. You need to have certain religious practices. Otherwise, you can't really be saved. 
And those were just two of a hundred different ideas that were starting to come up in the church. And Peter knew about this. He knew that people were moving away from this idea that in Christ we had everything we need to this idea that sometimes we need something else. This is what Paul Tripp says about this idea of forgetting that we have everything we need in Christ. He says, when I forget who I am in Christ, then I start to look horizontally for what I've already been given vertically. And I begin to move away from the gospel. Maybe the gospel isn't the answer. Maybe it doesn't have everything that I need. And you just steps away from falsehood. When we're struggling with fear and doubt and confusion and pain, our heart is gonna look for anything that can help it feel better. And if we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, if we don't remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel as Peter's already told us to do, then we will find ourselves falling into things that are not real, that are not true. We fall into ideas like Jesus plus. Maybe we really love Jesus, but we need something more than that. Maybe we need Jesus plus the right kind of politics and the right kind of way of viewing the world around us. Maybe the right kind of people to surround ourselves with. We don't want to associate with these people. We want to stick with the people that make us look good before God. Or maybe we have Jesus plus the right kind of career and the right kind of lifestyle that's comfortable and easy and pain-free. Maybe it's not even Jesus plus at all. Maybe it's Jesus minus for you. Maybe it's Jesus minus a gospel about justice and oppression. I really like what Jesus says about spirituality and eternity and God, but I, I don't really want to spend time thinking about people who are suffering from injustice and oppression. Or maybe it's Jesus minus some of the things he said about sex and finances. I really like what he says about God loving me, but I don't want to talk about how he tells me to use my body or my relationships or my lifestyle. A lot of us have a Jesus plus or a Jesus minus mentality. When the gospel tells us that it's really Jesus plus nothing equals everything. There's not something that we need to add on to Jesus to save ourselves and to put worth on our lives. There's nothing that we need to take away from Jesus. It's Jesus as he is. It's Christ alone. It tells us in verse 9 of chapter 2, God says uh, through Peter that he knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That's what the people of the church needed to hear at Peter's time. They needed to know that God knew how to save them. He knew how to care for them. He knew how to protect them. That's the encouragement. He wants to save us, but we have to listen to him, and he has to be the basis for truth. See, there's two real ways that we think about truth in, in our era. We can either think the kind of contemporary view, which is we create truth ourselves, or we discover it within ourselves. The way that the world is is something that we can shape, that we can control, that we can change. Or we can come to it the way that the Bible talks about it. The biblical view is that ultimate truth is revealed by God. The way that we should think about ourselves and our neighbors and the world around us, that's something that God shares with us in his grace for us and his love for us. In Acts 17, there's this great moment where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is preaching to a group of Jews called the Bereans, and he's preaching the gospel to them, and they do something really interesting after he's finished speaking with them. It tells us in Acts 17, 11, that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Can you imagine listening to the greatest preacher of all time, the Apostle Paul, and they didn't just take what he said for granted. They didn't just say, wow, this guy's really charismatic, and he's really smart. They said, let's go and see if what he says matches what God has told us in the past. Well, God's spoken to us through his word. 
And that's why the Bible says that they were more noble, why it holds them in high esteem, is because for these groups of believers, they said, we don't want to just listen to what feels good or excites us or meets us where we are. We want to check this against what God has said. We want to see what God's revealed to us. And when we were talking about this sermon this week in our preaching team meeting, and Pastor Jeff shared a story about how throughout ministry, he's often talked with people about the reasons why they decide or don't decide to come to church. They talk to Pastor Jeff about, well, what's your church's view on politics? Or what's your church's view on marriage or injustice or finances or one of a thousand different issues? And what Pastor Jeff said is that not very often does someone say, hey, what's your church's view on the gospel? What's your church's view on Jesus and who he is and what he's done, what he says about other people? And the reason why that's so important is because the gospel, the news of who Jesus is and what he's done, is the seed from which everything else in our faith grows. If you want to know how to approach injustice as a Christian, study the gospel. If you want to know how to approach relationships in your life, study the gospel. Think about who Jesus is and how he led his life and what he did with his life. If you want to know if a church is trustworthy and whether there's false teaching going on, ask them what they say about the gospel. Ask us, Chapel Street Church, hold us to the line of what, if what we preach from this pulpit, from the pulpits in our campuses, does it match what the gospel says in God's word? But this false teaching that was going on in the church, it wasn't just about a different message and different ideas. It was also about a different character. A different character. Um, like many college students, when I was in college, I didn't have a great diet. You can tell this now by the shape of my midsection. But uh, when I was in college, I was very much, it was kind of this moment, you're, you're out at your parents' house, and for some reason, your very, very young and unintelligent brain tells you that now you can do whatever you want with your time, you can do whatever you want with your diet, right? Like now, there's no one cooking meals for me, so instead of having a healthy, nutritious meal, I'm gonna go to Walmart, I'm gonna buy myself a tub of cheese balls, I'm gonna eat the whole thing right now. Uh, and I moved from cheese balls to hot dogs wrapped in tortillas to entire bags of Sour Patch Kids for a full meal on a Tuesday night. And pretty soon, my life was not looking pretty good. And I'm thankful that my wife still decided to marry me despite my ballooning over the years. But what I think about in that moment is that I was in this period in my life where I thought self-indulgence was a really great thing where having the freedom to use my life however I pleased and choose whatever I want was a really, really great thing. And the truth is, self-indulgence can be destructive. And it's a mark of false teaching. If we, want, if we think about the character of the teaching that we take in our lives, we need to ask ourselves a really important question. Is it about self-indulgence or is it about self-denial? Listen to what Peter says about some of the false teachers that he was talking to. Starting in verse 12 uh, in chapter two, he says, these like irrational animals Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They counted pleasure to revel in the daytime and their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. 
quite a cheery little passage, isn't it? It's got some really hard words in there. I mean, Peter, think about who Peter is and the grace that Peter understood in his life. He'd walked beside Jesus, and yet Peter chooses some of the most harsh words in the Bible to talk about false teachers. He says things like they're bold and willful, creatures of instinct, they're ignorant, full of adultery, trained in greed, and that they love gain from wrongdoing. Now, when we hear those words, it might be easy for us to say, he must be talking about people outside of the church. He must be talking about people that were kind of in the community and talking to the Christians. But the truth is, he's talking to people who are with the Christians in the church. He says that they feast with you. They sit with you. They talk to you. They're not terrible people. They're not obviously evil people. These are people who are just as much in the race to try and follow Jesus as everyone else. But the problem is that they've become deceived. Peter even says that they don't even know sometimes what they're saying. He says they're ignorant of their own deceptions. That's why we have to be so careful to examine our own character and the things that are coming out of our life from what we listen to and what we believe to make sure that we are not buying into lies about who Jesus is. The question we need to ask ourselves is sometimes have we given in to a false narrative about who Jesus is? Have we forgotten the things that he's taught us? Have we forgotten the things that he did? We've got to look at the character of the teaching we listen to. Is it about self-satisfaction or is it about self-denial? Is the teaching you take in based on things that help you feel better about some of the struggles in your life that kind of mute out the pain or is it about looking to Christ? Because that's really what self-denial is about. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In the passage we, we haven't got to read here, just a few verses before what I just read, uh, Peter talks about two people in Scripture. He talks about Noah and Lot. And he tells their stories uh, because it really speaks to this idea of the character of teaching. Nor and Lot, if you're familiar with them, are two of the uh, kind of darkest stories in Scripture. They're not really the ones you want to bring up when you want to encourage someone, right? Nor is the story of how things had gone so bad that God had to flood the earth. And Lot is the story of a man who was living in a city that was so corrupt and so unjust that God literally rained down fire on it. So why does Peter talk about these two stories? Why does he hold up Nor and Lot in this moment? Because Noah and Lot are not exactly perfect examples of what it means to love God and love your neighbor. Noah was a drunkard and he did plenty of things wrong. Lot was someone who disobeyed God on a lot of occasions and chose to go the other way. But what was unique about these two men and why they're held up in this passage is because both of those men looked at the culture that they were living in and they denied themselves to try and pursue the things that God called them to. You had Noah who in the midst of a culture that had gone completely sideways fixed himself on God, listened to God, prayed earnestly, and despite his flaws and his mistakes and the brokenness in his life, led his family towards God. And then you've got Lot, who despite the wickedness around him, despite the injustice, he held on to God's view of righteousness. He held on to the things that God had taught him, and he led his family in that way. He even preached to the city. He was told in this passage that Lot grieved the sin around him. We told that actually he was a leader in the city he was in. So he didn't kind of divorced himself entirely from all the brokenness around him. He involved himself in it. He grieved it. He didn't bend to it. 
that's such a great picture of what it means to stay focused on Christ and to deny ourselves and take up our crosses, to not divorce ourselves from the culture around us and the ways that it's broken, but also grieve some of the ways that it's not the way God intends it to be. Those are the two pitfalls that we can fall into, these two ditches either side of the way of Jesus is to become completely hostile to the, t- the culture around us or to become p- completely permissive of it. Both of those are false lessons, false teaching. To say we're gonna, we're gonna get away completely from everybody else because they don't vote like us and they don't think like us and they don't believe the same things as us so we're not gonna involve ourselves with them at all. Or to come to the other side and say, you know what, despite the things that Jesus has said to me about the way I should lead my life, I really like the way that everybody else is doing it and it's really hard to live the way that Jesus has called me to. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and love him the best I can, but I'm gonna come into this ditch where maybe we bring a few extra things in as well. Both of those are destructive for us because both of those are outside of the way God intends to love us and care for us and protect us and lead us. You know, we're always looking for the false teacher out there. We are always saying, well, who's the guy that's not preaching the true gospel? Who's the, who's the, the woman out there who's not speaking to us about what God desires for us? And it's always out there, out there, out there. But what about in here? What about our own hearts and the things that we believe and the ways that we respond to our neighbors because in our own hearts we have believed something that's not true about who God is? That's a much harder thing to do, but it's a much more important thing to do, to examine ourselves. The last thing that we see in uh, Peter's passage here is a different end, a different end to false teaching. This is what he says in verses 17 through 19. He says, there are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. It's such a tender picture of the gospel he closes with. In the midst of a passage that's full of very harsh criticism and condemning words, Peter says that false teaching, what really marks it is that it's a waterless spring. In your thirst, it doesn't quench you, it doesn't care for you. It's exactly like the moment when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John 4. In John 4, Jesus is in Samaria with his disciples, and he sits down at a well, and a woman comes along to collect water from the well, and Jesus tells her everything about her life. And she's talking to him, and Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of the water of this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, say, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You know, the real consequences to false teaching is that you will find yourself at a waterless spring that doesn't satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. That the very thing that we run to to try and meet our needs will in fact not meet our needs. That's what God tells his people all the way back in Jeremiah. He says to the prophet Jeremiah, my people have committed two evils. One, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, And two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The real comfort of this passage, no matter how hard hard it is, 
is that Peter is speaking the way he is because he knows God desires good things for us. He wants to meet our needs. He doesn't want us to run to things that are empty and dry. He wants us to come to the one who is everything that we need. That's why God is so passionate about this. It's why he's so ferocious. It's why he says such difficult things is because God knows what is good for us and what is bad for us, and he desperately wants good for us. It's such a sad thing to behold for God as, as our creator, the one who loved us, to see us hewing out cisterns for ourselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You remember at the close of the last chapter, when Peter is talking about the transfiguration and this experience that he had with Jesus, right at the end he says, this is not a clever myth. This is not something that people have just come up with. What he's saying is this, what I'm preaching to you about this Jesus, he's not a broken system. He's not some idea that we've just come up with to try and meet our needs. He's the real deal. He's the, the fountain of living water. Think about why this matters so much to Peter personally. Why would Peter be so whacked up about false teaching and these ideas? Why would he talk about it in such ways as it being destructive and, and evil and wicked? I want to read verse 1 really quickly again. Chapter two, it says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Who in the Bible denied their master? Who in the story of Jesus denied their master? Peter. The one writing this letter, the one that's saying all these things, when he's talking about false teaching, he knows what it's like to have given into his fear and to given into distraction and have denied the one that bought him. Better than anyone else, he knows it. He's not talking from a place of condemnation. He's not talking from a place of wanting to shame people. He's talking from his own personal experience and he's trying to say to them, don't do what I did. Don't buy into the lie that there is something you need apart from Jesus. Don't buy into your fears, don't buy into your doubts, don't buy into your questions, but trust that in Christ, God has given us everything we need, even in the darkest moments. He knows that ultimate freedom is not in indulging in himself, but trusting and denying himself, trusting Jesus. So I wanna close by just sharing three things that I think we need to do to avoid false teaching. The first is that we need to search the scriptures, just like those Bereans in Acts, who when they listened to Paul, even Paul, the Apostle Paul, they said, we are going to look at God's word, we're gonna spend time patiently and slowly asking ourselves, what is the gospel? What is it that we're building our life on? What are we hoping in? What is giving us strength in our darkest moments? Searching the scriptures. Second thing, we've gotta remain in community. We've got to remain in community. We can't try and follow Jesus by ourselves. You know, one of the worst things that we can do, I think, as a church, is let our community become one where people with doubts and questions don't feel safe to explore that with us. Because that will drive them straight into the arms of false teaching. If in their fears and their doubts and their hopelessness they come into the church, and we become too harsh with them and, and ungracious towards them to where those doubts and questions, they don't feel like they can get them answered here. And so they'll run into the arms of a false teacher who offers them anything. 
It's so important that we create a community amongst ourselves that is built on the gospel, that's built upon grace and gentleness and support and encouragement because there's so many other ideas swelling around us at any time. Paul even says in his letter to the Ephesians, he says that he doesn't want the church to be blown away by every wind of doctrine because there's so many ideas at any one time that can lead us off course. And so we've got to remain in community. And lastly, we've got to pray diligently. We've got to pray diligently. You know, one of the things that Peter taught us in the last chapter is that our hearts don't, by default, move towards Jesus and towards his way. They drift because they forget. Peter told us in the last chapter, I'm gonna keep telling you the gospel, I'm gonna keep reminding you of it because there's so many other ideas out there, bad ideas, that if I don't keep telling you the gospel, if I don't keep reminding you of the gospel, your heart is gonna drift away. And so one of the most important things that we can do is pray for one another diligently, daily. Say, Jesus, keep me focused on who you are. Remind me of what you've done for me. Remind you that my life is not built upon what I do, it's built upon what you did. Remind you that I don't need to justify myself by living one way or another, but by coming and trusting in your cross. Remind me that I don't need to take anything away from you. The, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That the things that you've asked of me are good for me. That your kindness is your call to me to walk away from certain things. Praying that that would settle in our hearts, that it wouldn't be just something that we hold in our minds, but it would be something that we treasure in our hearts. I just want to finish by going back to Jesus' words in, in John 4 when he said that anyone who drinks of these well, this well will be thirsty again, but anyone who drinks the water I offer him will never thirst again. Friends, the reason why 2 Peter 2 is so important is because there's a lot of broken systems out there and God wants more. God wants more for us. He has a greater destiny and so don't return to lesser things. Don't go and listen to messages that ask something of you that Christ doesn't. Don't go backwards. There's greater things ahead in Christ than anything that we've ever left behind. And there's no better place to go to find the needs of our heart met than Christ. Let's pray this morning. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage that is challenging. There's difficult words in here. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to examine ourselves in light of what we just read and ask ourselves, are we believing things that are not true? about you. But there's so many distractions to us. It's hard to, to learn everything there is to know about you, to, to follow you. And so God, we just ask for grace as a church. God, we pray that in this place, in these walls, Lord Jesus, that you would teach us the way of grace. You would teach us to come to you, the fountain of living water, to have all of our needs met. And we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name.